This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So for our hot question of the day today, we're talking about this whole Port Moody Council situation. Last night, they voted to ask Mayor Rob Vagramoff to go on unpaid leave while a sexual assault charge against him continues to work its way through the courts. Now, they voted four to three in favor of that. Even Rob Vagramov himself voted on a motion that had to do with him, which I thought was very strange. He said, though, he's considering the vote. He'll take it into consideration. But legally, he doesn't actually have to leave. He doesn't have to do anything. There's no mechanism for him to be told to do any of this. So we're asking you for a hot question. Should he step down? Do you think, yeah, as a sign of respect or no, he doesn't have to. Check it out at CKNW or at Simisara980 or drop me an email, Simi at CKNW.com. The BC legislature was rocked by scandal, seeing the former clerk and now former sergeant at arms escorted out of the building amidst allegations of questionable spending and expenses. Well, now the third, I think it's the third, I'm trying to keep track here, report on the situation has been released. There's some eye-opening information in detail on this one. The latest released last night was done by Doug Lapard, former Vancouver Deputy Police Chief, and it has, well, some different information, new information than what we have heard before, uh, specifically when it comes to Sergeant at Arms Gary Lentz. And the reason why is this report was done under the auspices of the Police Act, because as the Sergeant at arms, uh, Gary Lentz would have fallen under that act for his job. And so that's what Doug Lepard was looking into. Now, in it, uh, some of the things that Doug Lepard said that he came to the conclusion of is that there was an egregious breach of public trust here. He believes that Lentz was not completely honest uh, in talking to Beverly McLaughlin and her report about the legislature expanse scandal and other situations as well. So we also thought it, before we, we're going to talk to Richard Zussman about this in just a moment, but we also uh, thought we would take a moment here and go back to an interview that we did with Sergeant-at-Arms Gary Lentz. Now he spoke to us back in May And this was just when Beverly McLaughlin's report had come out. And he told us at that time that his evidence to Beverly McLaughlin and her investigation was truthful. I gave evidence that was uh, truthful. I gave uh, uh, documents and I gave other uh, correspondence to uh, Justice Bev McLaughlin. She reviewed the whole matters uh, in context with everybody else's and found no misconduct. If, if there was anything that I that I had done that was wrong, it would have came out in the report, and of course I've been exonerated. Do you wish, though, looking back, that perhaps you'd done things differently? You know, that's, that's a very good question, and I think in the future I would probably do things differently uh, in the context that I would have more documentation. I'd make sure that uh, the uh, a better flow of, of communications and process uh, would, would be in place. I felt it was adequate at the time. But in view of this report and, and these circumstances that have been brought forward, um, yeah, I would definitely, if I, when, I, when I do go back, would be to ensure that there's better systems in place. You just said when you do go back. Do you want your job back? You want to go back? It's from day one. That's all I've ever wanted is just to go back to work. Now, we should also mention here that Gary Lenz uh, resigned from the job last week, just before Doug Lepard's report was made public. And what he said in that audio there is very important, because he talked about his information that he provided to Beverly McLaughlin, 
And it is directly contradicted by the Lepard report, where Doug Lepard says that that is simply not the case. Also, we just wanted to highlight another part of our conversation that we had with Gary Lentz, where we talked about his expectations from upcoming investigations like this one that just came out. But this is one report, though, right, Mr. Lentz? I mean, there's others still to come. There's a special prosecutor. There's a a police investigation. Are you at all concerned about those? No, you know, um, I know this is a process. We have um, the, uh, the the police investigation that is still uh, still to come, and uh, we've been in, the police have been in touch with us just recently, and they will be having a, an interview with them. But you know, from the beginning, I've done nothing wrong, and I'm looking forward to sitting down with the police and answering any questions they have for as long as they want to have have me there. As I said, I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing wrong in in, in this report. I've done nothing wrong. And, and for sure in anything in anything slightly criminal. And I look forward to getting this cleared up as quickly as possible so I can get back to doing the job that I was been assigned to do. Is are the, the police ask for a an interview then? Will you be doing that in the near future? Oh, yes, very much so. Uh, we've, uh, I haven't spoken to my lawyer on the exact date yet, but I am aware that there is a date that has been selected. And um, we'll be uh, having those conversations. And... Like I said, uh, I've done nothing wrong, and I look forward to having that that conversation with him and getting this cleared up. That is the former Sergeant-at-Arms Gary Lentz back in May when the Beverly McLaughlin report came out. Pretty sure it's a different tune today now that Doug Lepard's report has been released. Let's break down what we found out in this report now with the help of Global News Online legislative reporter Richard Sussman. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Simi. All right, so he obviously feels like, oh, he had done nothing wrong. But can you walk us through what the Lepard report says about that? Yeah, and obviously a lot has changed since that interview was done in May, right? Gary yes. Lentz has now quit as Sergeant-at-Arms, as you mentioned. And, you know, we learned last week that Gary Lentz had seen a copy of this Lepard report before he decided to announce his resignation. Uh, now we've all seen it. So let's walk through it like you mentioned. The yeah. Lepard report really focuses on one accusation and one incident. And that incident was brought up in the Plekis report, which was the removal of bottles of alcohol from the legislature. And there was a conference that was held at the legislature, and the accusation was that the bottles were being brought from the legislature paid for by the public to Craig James's house. And the Gary Lenz was involved in loading the alcohol into a vehicle. The excuse that Gary had made uh, throughout this process was that uh, he believed that Craig was going to return the alcohol uh, and be reimbursed for that return. What Doug Lepard found, based on his investigation and the number of witnesses he spoke to, was that that was not the case. There was no way that Lenz... Um, could have reasonably thought that these bottles were actually being returned. Let me read to you just parts of that report. SAA Lenz's statement that he believed the liquor was being returned is demonstrably false based on the totality of the evidence I gathered. SAA Lenz's untruthful oral statements and written submissions to Justice McLaughlin regarding the 2013 liquor incident, including with respect to his conversation with Speaker Plekis and Mr. Mullen in 2018, constitutes an egregious breach of public trust. Right. So it isn't just Simi that uh, he didn't tell the truth around the alcohol. It's that he then lied about it when right. he spoke to Justice McLaughlin. And again, it's there. 
Lepard's word, against Lenz's word, against McLaughlin's word. You know, we've heard that through this entire discussion. As you mentioned, we're now getting to almost a year of this. Yes. Uh, but again, witnesses have come forward here to make arguments that make it seem like and there's no – that obviously Gary Lenz lied to McLaughlin in this situation. And that's what struck me when I was reading through the report last night is that he told Beverly McLaughlin one thing. But in the Lepard report, there are numerous witnesses that Doug Lepard found credible that say Gary Lentz told them something very different even at the time. And so he was telling two different stories. Right. And I think that's ultimately the findings of this and the conclusion that uh, there was enough grounds here that Lenz uh, would have been disciplined. Would that have meant he would have been fired with cause from his position at Sergeant Arms because of lying to Beverly McLaughlin? That we will never know because the process of hiring the clerk and the Sergeant at Arms is complicated. It goes through the members of the Legislative Assembly, but the fact that Lenz resigned and, and, you know, as the listeners know, what he explained last week in a statement was that he resigned because he didn't believe that he could go back uh, and continue his work at the Legislative Assembly uh, because the damage that had been done to his reputation would never fully be repaired, and that if he continued to Sergeant at Arms, he would be doing a disservice to the office. That, right. That's a quote from last week. And so, you know, you have to think the two are tied together. But again, yeah. this, this is far more complicated than it is simple. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's we've so had true. Many so people, true. and as you've mentioned, we've seen a lot of these reports. We've seen the McLaughlin report. We've seen one report from Carol Bellringer, the Auditor General. She has now decided that she's going to resign. I spoke to her last night. It was the first interview she has done since all of this. Uh, after she spoke to the Legislative Assembly Management Committee and she said, you know what, I'm 62 years old. I have a lot of health issues like any 62-year-old does. I have other things I want to do. But did this situation with the speaker and, and the sergeant arms and the clerk cause a lot of stress in my life? Yeah, it sure did. <laughs> and so, you know, this is this has taken yeah. its toll on a lot, a lot of people. And we continue to sieve through. And there's going to be more. As you mentioned, the RCMP investigation is not done yet. Yeah. We're going to see workplace reviews. There's a lot more to come here. You know, what's interesting, though, Richard, about this over the last year, there's two, I think, incidents, despite how complicated this whole thing has been, that really stuck in the public's mind. One was the wood splitter, yeah. right? And the second was this image of the truckload of alcohol being removed from the legislature and who knows what happened to it. And that's really what I think this story is all about. Yeah, and I think that is a big part of it is that it just seems so wrong. People know that, you know, when you can enjoy the alcohol at an event if you're an employee or you're invited to the event, but you don't take it home because that's paid for by the taxpayer. Yeah. And I think it creates, as mentioned in the Lepard report, this breach of trust. And, you know, I think it's reasonable to know that, that Gary Lenz himself knew that it wasn't, but, but it's unclear if he ever actually benefited, right? So why did he believe it was important to not tell the truth to protect something that Clerk Craig James had done? Right. And so that, that to me, uh, is still an unanswered question that I struggled to get my head around. And Gary Lenz has decided not to do any more interviews. You know, we've had these statements from him now. Uh, you know, I've, I've tried to find him to ask him questions. We've had no luck doing so. Right. You know, we'd like to hear from him to try to explain 
all he seems to have done wrong here is lie to Beverly McLaughlin. But which why? Which is egregious in itself. Yeah. Exactly. But Cindy. why? Why? Exactly. And, and, and because it was Craig James who seemingly broke the rules and potentially the law by stealing this alcohol. And that's what the RCMP will conclude. But why lie um, if this is something that, you know, doesn't, you, you did not benefit from. We're talking to Richard Zussman about it, our Global News online legislative reporter. What happens now with this information, Richard? Yeah, so Simi, I think, you know, it's gone to the Legislative Assembly Management Committee. They were debating uh, last night whether to release this publicly. They ultimately decided that it was in the best interest to do so. Considering that Lenz has now resigned, uh, it just goes on to the pile of uh, reports that have been done into this. You know, the, the legislature is making substantial changes around uh, rules and reporting practices in terms of uh, spending public money. You know, all of that is getting factored in. But this case alone is just going to be handed over. I think right. it also will be handed to the RCMP to look at. The one thing that still miffs me about it all is Alan Mullen, the chief of staff to the speaker, is the one that brought forward this concern. And Plekis's office, the one that Mullen works for, is the one that asked for the investigation from Doug Lepard. And, you know, clearly both Mullen and Plekis want there to be justice here at the legislature. They want people to be held accountable for the misspending that we've seen. Yeah. But again, it seems to be a strange step in process to me that not only did they complain, but then they hired the person to commission it. I think Lepard, Doug Lepard clearly is incredibly credible, uh, but so was Beverly McLaughlin. So we, we keep sieving through this idea of, you know, who has all the facts and, and, um, how are we getting them? And there seems to be a disconnect there for me still as we work the process through. The RCMP will ultimately, uh, have the final play in all of this. They yeah. have been the longest investigation. They have, uh, greater access to, po like, subpoena powers and things like that than the other people do in all of this. So I think, obviously, we'll have to wait, uh, on judgment on all of this until we hear from yeah. the RCMP. I still am so curious about some of the details that were deep in that Lepard report too, you know, <laughs> like about the actual truckload of liquor and where yeah. it went. Apparently, according to this report that numerous people said it was supposed to go to the former speaker, Bill Beresoff's house, but you know, no confirmation on that. And also the fact that the other former speaker, Linda Reed, there was a lot of information that she refused to provide to Doug Lepard. So we will try to talk to Linda Reed today. Uh, we've had challenges uh, talking to her about this issue in the past, but uh, now that the legislative session is back, uh, she will be in question period like all of her other colleagues, and we will attempt to ask her why, seemingly based on reading the report, she is one of uh, the few people that uh, declined to speak uh, to Doug Lepard. So yeah. uh, she turned down an opportunity to be interviewed. An interview was requested. She still is an elected official serving the community of Richmond. Uh, and uh, I think for that, uh, she should be held accountable and at yeah. least answer the questions to what she knew and when. Maybe it helps provide information to figure out what happened here. Maybe it doesn't. But considering she's the former speaker uh, and she was the speaker at the time of this incident, uh, she could provide some incredibly valuable information. Yeah, I still want to know who got the truckload of booze. Where right. did it go? And, and <laughs> do we know if she knows? Maybe not. Maybe she does. But yeah, that is one of those questions. And, you know, I think still the public feels like, uh, is there a way to get repaid for all of this? And I think ultimately yeah. with, you know, Gary Lenz and Craig James retiring, resigning, however you want to say it, uh, there are very few functions to actually get this back. You know, potentially there's the uh, civil 
courts, which would be very rare in this situation. But I think the public feels like, well, our money was misspent and misused because of a lack of rules at the legislature, yeah. and the public should get that money back. I, I think it's going to be hard to do that, but I think the public feels that could be a piece of accountability here, too. I believe it. All right, Richard, thank you. Thanks, Amy. Good luck with getting those answers today. That <laughs> Thanks. is Richard Sessman, our Global News Online legislative reporter. You know, we've been hearing a lot of that sound right there, just outside of our studios here in downtown Vancouver, actually for the last couple of weeks. Those are the sounds of workers protesting. They are on strike. They've been off the job after questions between Unite Here Local 40 and the employers broke down last month. So we're talking four large hotels in downtown Vancouver where the workers have been trying to get people's attention in that way. And this morning, the BC Federation of Labour is calling on the general public, so all of you out there, to boycott the four hotels in this ongoing labor dispute. So those hotels are the Hyatt Regency Vancouver, the Weston Bayshore, the Pinnacle Hotel Harborfront, and the Rosewood Hotel Georgia. We wanted to talk more about this, like what has led us to this point. So joining us now is Laird Cronk, the president of the BC Federation of Labor. He actually, you just came upstairs because you were downstairs on the picket line just a few minutes ago. Yeah, that's right. Happy to be here. Well, what's going on? Like, wh- how has it gotten to this point? Well, they haven't had a contract for months and months and months and months. They've been at the bargaining table. Serious, significant worker issues around health and safety of the workers, around workload, around livable wage, um, around precarious work and the number of shifts they get with these very profitable resort-type hotels. And so this is the labor movement standing in solidarity to say, let's get let's get them back to the bargaining table. Let's get a deal that works for everybody. They have been very vocal because we obviously can hear everything that's going on out there uh, for the last couple of weeks. Has it made any difference? I think it has, and I think it will. I mean, under the labor laws in BC, um, there's not a replacement worker provision. So this means management's running the hotel. You have workers out saying, instead of doing that, why don't we get back to the bargaining table and solve these reasonable issues that workers are raising. And I think having that presence and now asking for a public boycott to put pressure on the hotels helps get it where it needs to be. I mean, no deal has ever been solved away from the bargaining table. We need to get them back to the table and find a, find a deal for both sides. So is it impacting tourism or are they managing with having management take care of all this? Well, I mean, they can answer that question better than I could. I, I imagine when you don't have the workers that have the relationship that make the money for you, that have the relationship with the folks that stay at your hotel you know, regularly, that good, strong relationship, it's probably um, not a good thing. So getting them back to the table in a deal is the key issue today. Yeah, so what, what are the issues that we're dealing with? You talked about precarious work. I think we know, we, what I've often heard is that one, we don't have enough hotels in downtown Vancouver to begin with. That's why hotel rooms are so expensive. Uh, you know, tourists do pay a pretty penny to stay in downtown Vancouver. So what are the issues here? So, I mean, I'll defer to the specific bargaining issues. I mean, that's sure. best done at the table, not not in the public, right? And I'll defer to Unite Here Local 40, the union representing these 1,200 workers. But it is, it is, I think there's a broader issue here for the public. This is about, you know, we hear about um, um, precarious work. We hear about having enough shifts as an issue here so the folks can actually make a living so that they can, they can get to work and they can get back and make a living and do the job that needs to be done. Uh, health and safety issues as well. Right. And is that, do you think, uh, in the entire industry? 
Uh, I think it likely is. This is this is a key moment with uh, four hotels that are very profitable, uh, where the workers are saying, "Look, we have reasonable issues. Why can't we get these resolved at the bargaining table?" That's why they're on strike because it's not tenable anymore not to resolve these issues. And I think it's probably a broader question out there, but this is the one that we're dealing with today. Has it been tough to get the public's attention on this? Because I know in downtown you have obviously been very visible the pro you know they've been out there and and they're very loud you can hear them but outside of that has it been tough to get the public's attention on this well i think the challenge today is you know i think they've done a great job the passion they have to say hey we want our issues resolved when you walk by and 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 they'll talk to you about the issues is strong but Lots of people book online. Lots of people do things differently today. So I think raising the awareness and part of today is saying, hey, we're asking the public to apply pressure is making sure the public knows. So we will spread the word through the union movement in British Columbia, 500,000 members of our affiliates right across Canada and even North America to let them know when they're booking. You know, at the end of that computer, these hotels are on strike. And But you don't hear that on the website when you book online. Uh, I haven't tried it myself, um, but I know this. We need to get the public awareness out there, and we have a network to do that through the union movement. Okay, and so you would like the public to boycott. Is this is this the right venue, though, for that? Like, are people in BC the ones who are booking at these hotels, or do you need to take that message wider? Well, I know unions in BC use these hotels, or unionized hotels, right? So um, we've been cancelling bookings and not making any new bookings during the dispute. I think there's a lot of people in British Columbia, and if they're coming to Vancouver, it's still a tourist destination, do book in these hotels. So I think raising that awareness is important, but also letting, and we can do this through the labour movement in Canada and North America, letting others know out there, through their networks that these hotels, so we'd like them to stand in solidarity with these workers solving these societal issues. I mean, that's always been like a way to get the public's attention, right, is to call for a public boycott. Do these work? I think they can. I think they do. I mean, it's because this one talks about issues that actually should resonate with all of us around affordability, not just in Vancouver, but around the province, around the country, around North America. Um, These are workers that are a classic case of a very profitable employer. They have reasonable health and safety, wage, uh, getting enough shifts, precarious work issues. It's important for society. I mean, society doesn't work without treating workers properly. So I think it should and will resonate with the public. So what is your message then to the public today? The public is uh, public message is these workers are fighting for a fair contract with the employer. We'd like the public to assist with applying pressure um, by if they if they have the means to do so, um, not doing business during the labor dispute uh, with any of these four hotels. All right, we'll have to find out how that goes. In the meantime, I'm sure you're going to go. They've been protesting. Have they been on there every day? They're there every day. I know, and, they, and you went, and if you haven't been in downtown Vancouver, then you haven't seen it. But boy, we have certainly seen it every single day. And I've had emails from people too saying, "What what is going on in downtown Vancouver?" So clearly, there is some curiosity about this. I think there is, and raising the profile, I think, is important. I mean, the whole point of this: let's get back to the bargaining table, let's resolve reasonable issues, let's get people back to work, and find a deal for both sides. We'll see what happens. Laird, thank you for your time. Thank you. That is Laird Cronk, the uh, president of the BC Federation of Labour, raising uh, interest in a public boycott of these four hotels that are involved in this labour dispute. It's become very loud, very vocal in downtown Vancouver over the last couple of weeks at the Hyatt, the Western Bayshore, the Pinnacle Hotel Harbourfront, and the Rosewood Hotel Georgia. If you want to weigh in, you can email me, simi at cknw.com. You know, you may be wondering, like, why all this fuss about what's going on in Port Moody? Well, the truth is what's happening in Port Moody could happen anywhere. It could happen in your community as well. What we've learned as a result of this, really, is that there is no mechanism for councillors or a mayor to be removed 
if they're under any kind of cloud, if they're charged with a crime, as is the case with uh, the mayor of Port Moody, Rob Vagermov, even if they are convicted eventually of that crime, there's no way for councillors and the mayor to be removed. That does impact you, no matter where you live. And in Port Moody, this has become a very contentious issue. We've been talking about this this morning, that last night, uh, Port Moody Council, and they heard from many members of the public too, it was pretty contentious, but they ended up voting four to three to ask Mayor Rob Vagermoff to go back on to leave. He said, even after he voted in a motion that had to do with his own future, he said he'll take the vote into consideration, but really legally, he doesn't have to leave. Remember, it was last March when Rob Vagermoff was charged with sexual assault. And at that time, he did take a leave of absence, but a month ago, he returned to work even though the criminal case has not yet been concluded. Let's talk to one of the Port Moody councillors about this, about what this has been like there. Diana Dilworth joins us now. Councillor Dilworth, thank you for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure, Simi. Tell me about that meeting last night. What was that like? I've been sitting at that council table for 20 years, and I have never seen a council meeting like that. It was it was incredibly uh, emotional, uh, both from people that were supporting the mayor and those that were supporting my motion. And why did you bring forward that motion? Because technically, there, you know, even though you vote on it, there is nothing that can be enforced. Once the, the mayor came back from leave, I literally heard from hundreds of residents by email, by social media, in coffee shops and grocery stores. And everybody was really concerned that he was still sitting there. So I took it upon myself to bring forward this motion, asking that council formally ask that he return to an unpaid leave of absence. And I cannot believe the, the community response to that motion. I, I had over 200 residents write in to council to, to ask that my motion be respected. Dozens of people spoke last night at council. And, and quite frankly, I believe that the mayor is absolutely tone deaf to what's going on in our community. And he's not listening to what his constituents are asking him to do and doing the right thing and going back on an unpaid leave. Were you surprised that he stayed and actually voted on a motion that he was the subject of? Uh, Quite frankly, I was shocked. I I believe it is absolutely wrong for the mayor to to vote on motions that pertain directly to his participation on council. He advised that he was told by a staff member that he was not in a conflict of interest, and I, I disagree with that. The community charter clearly defines a conflict of interest as involving any um, pecuniary impacts and voting on whether he gets to continue to sit at the table or whether he has to go on unpaid leave is uh, d- definitely a pecuniary impact. Now, I just and, and I was even more stunned that after the vote took place, he continued on with the meeting like nothing happened. He dismissed hundreds of residents that asked him to do the right thing. Now, Councillor Dilworth, you said you've been there for, for 20 years. What has this done in terms of the governance of Port Moody? Like, is the, is the regular everyday work getting done here? No, it's not, um, because there are differing views in the community, and people are going to staff and asking for advice. I, I understand there's a number of freedom of information requests that are transpiring as people want to see uh, emails that have been going back and forth and correspondence that, that's going back and forth. And I, I think people who saw the meeting last night saw 
that nothing really is getting done. Um, the last meeting that we had two weeks ago was also uh, a very contentious one. When, when you have people that are very emotional and they're crying and they're yelling, it is very difficult um, not to, to take that to heart and not to be distracted from undertaking the good governance that we were elected to do. And has the mayor made any effort to try to work with councillors to get the work done? Absolutely not. Uh, When he returned to work, I found out by text message from someone who had seen him return to City Hall. He and I have not actually had a conversation since he's returned, and he has not in any way tried to bring council together to move forward. He's, he's been, and this is my word, he's been very arrogant and high-handed in his approach to governing, and he seems to be very dismissive of any thoughts or perceptives other than his own. And Port Moody, I understand, has a pretty big development, right, that the city that council has been working on for the last little while? We have a number of large development applications in in the works, but in particular, there was one on the agenda last night as one of the issues that the mayor wanted to to push through. When he returned, he had a press conference and he made it clear that he was quite disappointed that his mandate was being stonewalled uh, by split votes. So last night, he put pretty much everything that got voted down or wasn't addressed while he was gone on the agenda. It It was a mega agenda, so to say. Yeah, it seemed like it. It seemed like a very unusual meeting. What What do you think this has done for the people of Port Moody? Like, I guess when I see stories like this, I get worried that people start to lose faith, right, in their governing institutions. I've heard from a number of residents this morning that are just really sad. They're really sad and they're disappointed. And like me, they can see that we seem to be stuck in a position where moving forward is going to be extremely difficult. I mean, all members of council last night um, spoke to, to being kind and having compassion and working together, but given the mayor's actions and some of the comments made by camp members of council that supported him are very indicative to me that it's going to be incredibly challenging moving forward and not only healing council, but healing our community. There's a lot of divisiveness. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of sadness. And I I don't believe that the mayor can provide the leadership that we need to help heal our community. And what kind of comments? You said these are things that you heard last night? Yes. Um, it was it was very interesting. We had a very powerful moment last night in the council chambers when a member of the public came to the, the microphone and asked that everybody that supports the mayor going back on leave to deal with his legal issues, excuse me, ask them to stand. And 150 men and women in the audience got up and stood. And four members of council, the female members of council also stood. And it was an incredibly powerful moment. And and I don't know that the mayor really appreciated it. And, And by continuing to chair the meeting after it was made very clear that a majority of council was not comfortable with him being there, Um, He just continued the meeting like nothing happened. And I really feel our residents uh, are feeling that they weren't heard by the mayor. Have you talked to the provincial minister of municipal affairs about this? Because I know this has come up before in other circumstances. Is like what mechanism (laughs) is there that exists to help in situations like this? So at last year's UBCM, all the mayors and councillors in the province of British Columbia voted to ask the minister to develop some legislation that would give us the tools 
to deal with, you know, the extraordinary situation of an elected official getting charged with a criminal act. And uh, my understanding, I actually looked up the, the province response and they have a, <coughs> excuse me, um, they know that the request has been made. They've acknowledged the complexities involved in drafting the legislation. And it is my hope that the minister, uh, particularly given the experience that we're, we're having right now, might look at fast-tracking that legislation. Right. So you're still hoping that, what, that'll still take about a year, right, for that to come into effect? Yeah. Yeah. I, do you know what? At the end of the day, uh, it was said over and over again last night, we don't want any municipality to have to go through what we're going through. And <clears throat> If the minister in the province can actually give us some legislative tools, I think there would be a sigh of relief from municipalities across the province. Nobody wants this to be happening to them. So, Councillor Dilworth, what happens now? I mean, it sounds like every one of your meetings is going to be quite interesting. Unfortunately, I agree with you, Simi. Um, The last two meetings have been incredibly challenging and, and difficult. And I don't know where we go from here. I woke up this morning just feeling so sad about what's happening in our community and and the divisiveness. Um, Rob's supporters were, were, they were attacking me personally last night. Uh, They were making this a a personal issue. And the mayor himself, after the meeting, said this is about uh, political maneuvering. And I guess my response to the mayor would be, hundreds of people took the time to, to write in. Dozens of people spoke at the meeting last night. You know, over 150 stood up. And four women on council also did. Are we involved? Are we all involved in a political conspiracy against him? I get back to the the point. He's he's tone deaf about what's actually going on in our community. Is it possible then for council to even work together when you have we that level? We, we we can try. We we have to. We were elected to govern, and I I think it's going to be very challenging for all of us to put our our personal feelings aside. And you know what, I think we're just going to have to get in a room and beat up on each other a bit and find the common ground. There's a lot of common ground. We've gotten a lot done in the last year on things that we agree about. What we need to learn to do is how can we better disagree with each other without it getting so ugly and so personal. Councillor Dilworth, thank you so much for your time on this today. You're quite welcome, Simi. Have a good day. You too. That's Diana Dilworth, a Port Moody City Councillor, talking about their very unusual meeting that they had last time. It was a regular Port Moody Council meeting, but the circumstances, the things that they discussed are quite unusual when you have a mayor that has been charged with sexual assault and uh, is back at work because he decided he was going to take himself off leave and come back. And remember, he was on paid leave. Uh, He wasn't paid leave for, what, six months or so, and then decided he was coming back to work. I've never, ever heard of a circumstance where somebody stayed to vote on a motion that affected them. So you've been hearing in the news today about this report that is out by the BC Women's Health Foundation, and it took a good look at how female patients are treated in the healthcare system versus how male patients are treated. And they found quite a few gaps. We wanted to talk more about this. So joining us is Dr. Lori Brado, the Executive Director of the Women's Health Research Institute. Dr. Brado, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Simi. So how exactly did the report take a look at this? Right. So this was a report that was sponsored by the BC Women's Health Foundation, um, commissioned in partnership with Pacific Blue Cross. 
and they surveyed 1,000 uh, British Columbian women, and they attempted to get a good cross-section across different ages, ethnicities, all different corners of the province. And the main question they were interested in was about women's first-hand experiences with accessing health care and their experiences um, at the face of health care providers. Um, so this was largely done through a survey, and then some of the findings were followed up in focus groups where women in small groups were invited to provide a bit more nuance and stories to some of the quantitative data. Okay, so that is like I went to the doctor with this ailment and this is how I was treated kind of a situation? Exactly. And some of the specific uh, uh, things that the, the report was focused on was women's experiences with accessing care when they needed it, how often they were unable to access care over the past year, um, and thirdly, and very importantly, any experiences with feeling dismissed by a healthcare provider. All right. What was most interesting to you then in what they found? So, first of all, the study found that one-third of women don't feel that their needs, that their health care needs are currently being met. Um, just over half of the women felt that a physician had diminished or dismissed them over the past years, and these were women who had sought health care needs. Um, and three in ten women said that they had great difficulty accessing needed health care. Really? So, in what ways? So, uh, well, for example, women said that either they couldn't find a family doctor, and we know that one yeah. in five individuals in the province don't have a family doctor, and that proportion was even higher among younger women, women living with a chronic condition, Indigenous women, and new immig- immigrant women. So arguably the populations that we would say really need to have access to the health care services so that their health can be prioritized and so that long-term illnesses um, can be prevented. Those women are just not getting that primary health care that they need. And do we know why there might be these kinds of gaps? So that wasn't really the intent of the survey, but there was an opportunity to hear a little bit more from women's voices in, during the focus groups. And some of the things that women said was, yes, in part, it was geography. So those women living in more geographically remote areas of the province were far more likely to say they had great difficulty finding health care provider. Um, other women said that they had a lot of difficulty communicating with their health care provider. So either they had difficulties explaining their needs to their doctor, or a doctor brushed them off very quickly without them being able to explain their needs in a lot of detail. And then about 10% of the women in the survey said that they felt um, that the, the dismissal that they received was purely on the basis of gender. In other words, they were being dismissed simply because that they were a woman. Interesting. I've heard this before. And how much does this play into it? That idea, though, that so much of what happens in terms of research is also very kind of male-oriented. Like, are enough women participating in clinical trials? Are they participating in, in research? Very good point. And uh, as the executive director of our Provincial Women's Health Research Institute, that is our mandate, is to support and enable women's health research across the province. And we know that it is grossly underfunded. So when we look at Canadian funding rates from our Canadian Institutes of Health Research, less than 10% of all of the grant funding over the last 10 years has been devoted specifically to women's health topics. So these really important women's health issues are simply not getting funded. Um, And then when we look at who's actually doing the research on women's health, by and large, it tends to be women 
women more often than than men. And that's an area where we see uh, a whole other set of disparities in that women are less likely to achieve grants. Um, when they do, those grants are of smaller size and they're of shorter duration. So there's systemic issues even related to funding and research that's really intertwined with um, the difficulties that women say in accessing the care that they need. Right. And how does that perpetuate the problem then? For instance, like I'm thinking about even when it comes to dosage for a drug, right? right. A lot of that right. is built around men because those are the people that they tested the drug on. Well, yes, and I think most of your listeners would be surprised to hear that's really only been in the last 15 years or so that clinical trials are starting to routinely include uh, both males and females. And for a long time, for many, many years of research, we would be studying women's health conditions in men. And so that means everything from prescribing rates to particular treatments to diagnostics are really based on a male model. And because both sex and biology, as well as gender and social factors, directly impact how men and women differentially experience an illness and respond to a treatment, it means that we're really, really missing the mark when it comes to giving women the effective treatments they need. Dr. Broderick, I was shaking my head while you were talking there because you're telling me that only changed in the last 15 years? That is correct. And, and we see examples among uh, our colleagues who are doing animal research, so non-human animal research. That's also been only a recent change. And for a long time, uh, studying conditions like postpartum depression or pregnancy was done in, in male rats. I'm um, sorry, what? Like, was, how is that <laughs> possible? That people doesn't... usually stop me and can't believe that. But yeah. there, I think, was a longstanding belief of the pesky um, interference of those, quote, female hormones that get in the way. And so to simplify things, um, male male but... rodents and other uh, species were studied. And, and, I mean, you can just hear how, how completely uh, irrational that, that yes. would be when we're, when we're really intending to study and understand women. Yeah, you're right. That just sounds how I don't understand how that even makes sense to people who are supposed to be so smart and studying these issues. <laughs> well, you know, it's it, I, I think that there it's it goes deep with that and it's systemic. Um, and there's also an unconscious bias at play. And one of the things we hope that this report will start a conversation on is that we need to do better in training uh, future healthcare providers because there is such a persistent unconscious bias that um, does undervalue the voices of women. And so we need to name it. We need to be able to recognize it when it's happening and we need just need to do better. So do you think that is changing though? Like are we're obviously not as bad as we were 15 years ago, but are things getting better? Yeah, you know, I think we're seeing some incremental changes, but given that this has been such a long-standing history, we need something much more drastic than incremental change. We need uh, a robust um, provincial as well as federal approach to this issue and say this needs to stop. And we're seeing this on other levels. So, for example, our institutions now are adopting policies that look at metrics like equity and diversity and inclusion in their hiring practices. So we're seeing some really positive steps in that direction. Um, And I would argue in the domain of, of women's health and women's health research, there's still a long way for us to go. Yeah, I was going to say, is this most important when it comes to the research aspect? Because I know that we're learning, like when it comes to cancer treatment, every single person's kind of DNA impacts how effective cancer treatment is, right? That is absolutely true. And and again, I'm, I'm a researcher and a clinician. And so for me, those two are, you know, two sides of the same coin. We can't have the innovations in health. We can't be delivering the best, most effective and efficient 
treatments and diagnostics to people without the research. Um, and similarly, the research that does get done has to be translated into practice changes and policy changes. Um, I see a better investment in, in women's health research as probably the lowest hanging fruit. It's the most logical place to start so that we can start to uh, equalize out the balance. So for women as well, like when you go to the doctor, I, I always pride myself on not going to the doctor very often because I think I don't want to bother the doctor, but then I realize right. that's probably not the way to approach this, right? Yeah, and, and that's especially true if you've had any experience of being dismissed in the past. And there's some women's health conditions where it's more likely for that to happen. So we heard a lot of coverage this morning in our press release from women who experience chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia um, or chronic pain. Um, and you hear heart-wrenching stories of women suffering in silence really for, you know, three or five or seven years before they receive a diagnosis um, and tend to be told this is all in your head because we can't find anything on an exam or in a blood, uh, a, a blood result. Um, and so it's unfortunate because it means that their suffering is compounded over time, all the while their disease is progressing as well. And so we need to get away from this uh, very, very unfortunate position, which is that if we can't see it and measure it, it must be made up or it must be psychological. It's simply not true. And we need to do better at, um, at our assessments and, again, the research to be able to detect when uh, a certain condition is present, even if we can't see it. Okay, interesting stuff. Dr. Brado, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Simi. That is Dr. Lori Brado, the Executive Director of the Women's Health Research Institute. Can you believe that story? That really up until 15 years ago, they were still studying things like postpartum depression in women, but using male rats to do it? Like that just blows my mind that these are super smart people and they actually thought that made sense to them right up until like 15 or so years ago, as Dr. Brado pointed out. We still have a long ways to go, I think.